Well, good morning. My name's Josh, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Great to see a little bit of snow. The first two winters I had here in Michigan did not have much snow, much to my disappointment. Uh, but it's been a heavy week uh, for me. I, we had an unplanned trip to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I did my grandmother's funeral on Friday, and it was a, a meaningful time, special time to be with everybody, uh, but it's made for a heavy week, a crazy week, and I know uh, we're not the only ones hurting. I know Miss Betty Park lost her daughter, Dawn, uh, and it, rather suddenly, so our, our hearts and prayers go out to, um, to uh, the Park family and everything that they're, they're processing. And uh, it, is, it is a heavy thing to, to say goodbye around the holidays here, and I think in some sense it brings home the reality of the good news of Jesus coming, breaking into our darkness. And so let me pray for us. Hope get my mind right, and we'll dive in to our text here. Father God, I praise you for the fact that we can come to you rejoicing and weeping. I praise you for the fact that you are a God of redemption, whose goodness is so pure and uh, un untainted that it can take even death and redeem it. We see that in Christ, redeeming death by bringing about the redemption of the whole world. Father, would you be near to us today? Would you open our hearts and ears to your word? Would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our Advent series here through uh, the, looking at the, the theme of fear in the birth of Jesus. And all the proclamations of Jesus is coming came also with an admonition to not fear. Jesus, as it turns out, is to fear what light is to darkness. When a light goes on in a dark room, what happens? The darkness vanishes. When Jesus shows up, fear vanishes. 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. We see God himself in Jesus' love. We see an element of how this works out in the coming of Christ, that when Jesus shows up, when perfect love comes down in the flesh, we see love casts out fear. And here's the thing, we all struggle with fear. Why? Because none of us are perfectly experiencing this perfect love we can have in Christ. This side of heaven, we won't experience the presence of Jesus perfectly, and so the, the, the residual effects of sin in our life will be, will be present. And so my hope, and the reason we're looking at this in our Advent series, looking at three specific fears we see around the Christmas story, is that we'd experience this presence of Christ, this perfect love, more deeply, and that it would, it would cast out more and more of our fear. Last, last week we looked at the fear of the impossible, those moments in life when life just, it, when it just seems too much, too impossible. And today we're looking at the fear of rejection, the fear of man, the fear of what other people might think. This is very powerful. It's something that I think affects our lives way more than we give it credit for. At my last church, we were a, a good-sized church, four or 500 people, but we were very understaffed. And so we were always uh, you know, hustling, make, make things happen. It was a great place to work because there's a lot of fun things to do, but... Uh, we always struggled to cover office hours because some of us were in seminary and, not, you know, being a pastor, like, not a lot happens in the office during the day apart from, you know, sermon prep or whatever. You, you want to be with people. So it was always hard to cover, cover office hours, and I was uh, getting to church uh, one morning, 
uh, or I think Camille and I were carpooling, we do, do the one car thing, and I got a text from my, the pastor I was working with, uh, my boss, if you will, and he said, Sally's trying to get in the church to drop something off, and no one's there. Where is everybody? Can you get there? And I wasn't supposed to be there. It wasn't like my, on my job description or anything like that. Uh, I was on my way. But I remember feeling incredible pressure, like he's going to be mad at me. This isn't going to go well. This is going to hurt my career somehow. It wasn't super logical. But I remember getting really angry, like really frustrated with Camille. And it wasn't until we were almost to church that I realized my, my, the fear of what my boss is thinking of me is having repercussions in my marriage. It's causing me to not love my wife or treat my wife the way I should. The, my fear of rejection, my fear of what he thought about me kind of obliterated my ability to love Camille well or just to be kind, to be, you know, be decent to her. And I think this happens all the time with us in our relationships. The fear of what other people might think causes us to hurt people around us, hurt ourselves. We'll work too hard and not rest or take care of ourselves because we fear what other people think. Well, if our kids aren't behaving in a way that makes us look good, we might be extra harsh towards them, not give them the grace that they need to you know, just be kids. Fear of rejection, very sneaky, has tragic consequences for our lives. And Joseph, we see here in our sermon text, was facing some intense rejection. And we see his mind being consumed by what people are going to think about him, what they'll think of Mary, his fiancée. We're going to look at why Joseph should fear not, why Joseph should not be afraid of, what, of rejection, of what other people think. Our outline kind of follows the, the why, how, what format. We're going to look at why Joseph should not fear. We're going to look at how the good news of the gospel addresses this fear of rejection. And we're going to look at what Joseph does in response. This super weird thing happened when I was writing my sermon. And I don't know why. It happened last year, too. When I type Joseph, I always put a Y on the end. So if I slip and say Josephy, it's kind of I'm trying not to, but it just it got so exhausting to go back and, de- and de- delete the why. I don't know why my fingers did that automatically. We're going to look at what Joseph, not Josephie, does in response. Well, let's set, set the scene here. Joseph is engaged to Mary, and you'll notice in the text there seems to be some difference in the way we think about engagement from the way Joseph is thinking about engagement because he resolved to divorce her quietly, which typically isn't how you end an engagement. If something happens, you, you call it off. Uh, it might be hard and awkward and painful, but it, it doesn't require any legal action. But in this time period, engagement was much more intense. It lasted for a year. It was, a, it was as binding as marriage. Same level of commitment, so it required a divorce if it were to end. And, and it wasn't like you divorced your fiancé, as weird as that sounds, and then you just figured something else out, uh, it, was, it was a major social faux pas. It meant that there was something drastically wrong with one or both of the people involved. So that's our, that's our scene. Let's dive into our text. Look at verses 18 through 19. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, <clears throat> before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now we see some of Joseph's character, both in good and bad here. Uh, he's, he's a just man. He, he's not trying to fly off the handle and publicly shame his wife, even though he knows shame will be coming to her. He doesn't want her to be shamed. But the options that he had is he could divorce Mary in one way or the other, no matter how quietly he did it, people would know that she was unfaithful to him, or he could stick with her, and everyone would assume that they had been unfaithful to God together. Joseph is saying, I don't want this child in my life. If I bring this child into my life, I will get rejected. I will get the disdain of the world. I'll be second class for the rest of my life. So he forms this plan, a quiet divorce, whatever that means, hopefully to mitigate some of the shame. And he settles on this plan, and he goes to bed. And look what happens in verse 20. But as but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So presumably Mary told him, hey, I didn't do anything bad. This is from the Holy Spirit, which is a tough sell, I would imagine, in this sensitive area of getting pregnant apart from your loved one. And there it is again. Jesus says, don't fear. Why? What, what reason does the angel give to Joseph? Because God is working. It wasn't Mary's unfaithfulness that has them both in this awful, difficult social situation. It's God himself, the Holy Spirit, at work. His timing is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. He is good. Now this verse... And I want to look at a little bit at God's timing on why the virgin birth is necessary, why God didn't just wait till they were married and then have Jesus come and just let it be that. Why, that seems like it'd be way more simple and it, we wouldn't have any issues of shame or social rejection or anything like that. So we're just going to take a, take a minute and talk about the theological necessity of the virgin birth. I think in church circles, uh, maybe in our cult, culture or context, we just kind of say, yep, virgin birth. We just kind of assume it or take it for granted. But it is kind of weird. And, it's, and if you pause too long on uh, Mary con being con conceiving a child by the Holy Spirit, they, you think about that too hard, it also gets uncomfortable. And honestly, ever since enlightenment happened in human history, people have been trying to take the supernatural out of Christianity as if it's some of this profound movement. Like, this will make it so much easier for people to believe in Jesus they don't have to believe anything supernatural. We just kind of get rid of miracles and stuff that's hard to believe. And the doctrine, the fact of the virgin birth, is almost always one of the first things on the chopping block because of some of the discomfort that we have. And then we've seen even recently, in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, it's just this cool, you know, shrugging thing. What's the big deal about the virgin birth? What do we lose if we get rid of it? Is it that big a deal? Well, the answer to that question is we lose the divinity of Jesus, his ability to save us from our sins, and the trustworthiness of Scripture. We lose a lot if you get rid of the virgin birth. In the book, The Person of Christ, theologian Donald McLeod writes, 
The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. Pretty heavy words. We hit this huge supernatural miracle of the virgin birth of the Immaculate Conception as kind of a precursor to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus did all these miracles, that Jesus actually can rescue us from our sin and save us to new life. So why is it so important? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to Romans 5, which is on page 1753, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles. Look with me in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. This is some pretty rich theological parts of Scripture, but we see that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. When Adam sinned in the, the Garden of Eden. And you'll notice that it's put on Adam and not Eve, even though Eve was the one that originally took the fruit. We'll talk about that in another sermon. But Adam was a type of the one to come, Jesus. Look in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's books and books and books and countless dissertations in this one doctrine. Well, I want to break it down as simply as we can. Picture it like a massive family tree with Adam and Eve at the top of it. Adam sins and his sin nature like an awful genetic uh, heritage, is passed down to every single per person born of a man. All of us are born uh, in, with, with a sin nature. And then we get to Mary, and God breaks into this huge family tree of sin, and His Son Jesus is born not of human man, not of human will or power or desire, but from God. You see how Jesus was not born of Adam's lineage like, like we all were. Why? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was of God's nature, not Adam's nature. He was of God's nature, not sin nature. He was born in the image perfectly of his Father. And then the beautiful thing, if we're picturing our family tree and all of us are, are firmly on the branches of the sin tree, is that in Christ, because God broke, God broke into this huge lineage through Jesus, is that the miracle happens, is that we transfer to his family tree. We become part of God's family, where we now have his nature, the new nature, which is one where it's possible to be forgiven of our sins and then be freed from its power in our life. And someday we'll be fully free from its presence in our life. Jesus' divinity, the fact that he was God. Jesus' sinlessness, the fact that he didn't have a sin nature and he never sinned. 
Jesus' ability to break into our brokenness and save us from all that all stem from this doctrine of the virgin birth. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Okay, theological lesson over. We can get back to Christmas time now. Suffice it to say, the virgin birth is important. If you have more questions about that, always happy to talk theology with you, get some coffee and wrestle through that. But I did want to uh, hopefully serve you by pointing out that it's not just part of a song. It's not just uh, a tradition, but it, it actually means a lot for our life. We see that Joseph should not fear rejection because God is at work. Whenever God's at work, we should probably say, okay, let's, do, let's go with that plan, even if it puts us in a precarious social situation, like Mary and Joseph are. They're in a pre- very precarious social situation, even though it's God doing the work, God the one that is orchestrating the events. God is at work. The God of the Bible is just so outside the world's framework of what God would be like, that often when we live life His way, it's very confusing, it's very offensive, or even scary to the world. So much, we're all theologians coming up with what we think God is like, and when we see the God of the Bible, it's, it's so outside our categories. He's beautiful and terrifying at the same time. He's powerful and He's gentle. He's incredibly just, but then He's merciful. And so when we become Christians and we proclaim that we're more sinful than we ever thought and more loved by this great God than we could ever hope, it just doesn't make sense to, to the world who, who doesn't know this God. We see that when we follow God in His way, when we embrace what is true, worldly logic just doesn't have a framework for it. Worldly logic would say, if there is a God out there, he probably is only looking for the winners. He's probably only looking for the people who are pretty good. Which means if you claim to know him, you're kind of claiming that you're on the inside, that you're, that you're one of God's chosen, that you're one of God's uh, winners. Of course, this is not what Christianity teaches. The only fitness that he requires is to know your need. The, the only way into the kingdom is to receive grace and repent. So when we say, I'm God's child, he loves me, I know him. That might sound like we're better, like we have this special ladder to get to God. But instead, we see that God comes to us. We don't climb any ladders to God, but God comes to us in the form of a baby. Christians, we boast in our weakness. We're up front with our struggles because it gives us a chance to point to God's grace. And the world doesn't have framework for that. Jesus says, Later on in Matthew, that a mark of, of people who follow him, a mark of a Christian, the mark of a Jesus follower, is that they will be persecuted and reviled and slandered because of him and righteousness' sake. That's not like for the Delta squad of, of Christians. That's all of Jesus' followers. That's scary. He says you're blessed when that happens. So we see that Jesus should, or Joseph should not fear rejection because God is at work. We see God doing something and we, we jump on board. We, we're going to acknowledge on the front end it's gonna, probably going to be different than the way that might seem right to us, or the way that might seem right to the world. So many times I find my, my mind going to Proverbs 14, 12 
uh, which said, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So there's a way that seems right to the world, a way that makes sense, that's socially acceptable, but in the end it leads to death. And let's look at how the truth of the gospel silences our shame. Joseph is afraid of shame, both for himself, which is why he wants to divorce Mary in the first place, and wanting to do it quietly to mitigate her shame. Look in verses 21 through 22. Lost my spot, sorry. The angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. How does the gospel answer our fear, rejection, our shame? It takes away our sin. It takes away the source of our shame. It takes away the source of our inadequacy, anything that we would do to try to make ourselves presentable. The, the very sense in our hearts that we need to be something to be acceptable comes from our sin. And Jesus will save his people from his sin. This is why we as Christians, we can live free from the fear of man, the fear of rejection, because we no longer need to bear the shame of our sin. It was all put on Jesus when he died on the cross. We're no longer defined by our brokenness, our inadequacy, our shortcomings. We're now defined, our identity is life with God as his children. Because Jesus rose from the grave, showing that our sin, our shame, our guilt had all been taken care of. God is with us. This is what Emmanuel means. God is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's God who justifies. It's the God who says, you are acceptable. You are okay. Other people don't justify us. A reputation doesn't justify us. Instead of God being as the world might typically understand God, which is far off, disapproving, hoping we do better, waiting to see if we can climb the ladder to get to Him, we see Him coming to us to be with us in our brokenness and shame and then to save us from it. Emmanuel is a profound statement against our shame. The fact that God is with us is a profound statement on any sense that we are unacceptable. Any sense of rejection. Because God in Christ has not rejected us. When we're experiencing the truth of what Emmanuel means deep in our souls, we begin to see freedom from this fear of rejection, this fear of shame. Because if God is for us, if we have been dressed in the righteousness of Christ, then whose opinion matters more than that? Now, if only if this were logical, then boom, we'd all be done with shame, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, Jesus accepts me, so now I will stop being shameful for the rest of my life. But this is not me saying, hey, stop it. This is not me saying, don't be fearful or insecure around other people. Just stop it. It's me saying that if you are in Christ, if God is with you, if Emmanuel is true for you, 
That means he's looked at you with love while you were already a sinner. Sent Jesus to die for you, raise you to new life. This is true. This is already true. But then the journey is to live into the not yet, the fact that we still have residual fear. We're still not perfectly in communion with Jesus. And so the, the invitation here is that when the fear of man pokes up its ugly head, when rejection springs up in our souls, find yourself snapping at your wife one morning because of a text you got from your boss, just let it be a, a clear sign that there's a breakdown between what is already true and what you've yet to experience. We don't need to add shame onto the fact that we're ashamed. We don't need to feel guilty that we're not already fearless in the face of our rejection. We just let it draw our hearts to what is true in the gospel. Let it pull this prayer from our souls. Father, please help me believe and experience that in Jesus I have no shame. And in Jesus, I am accepted. For those of you who are here uh, who aren't sure where you stand with Jesus, maybe you're visiting because it's Christmas time and you, you love you some Christmas carols, welcome. We're glad you're here. And my hope for you in all this theology and virgin birth talk and stuff is that you'd hear an invitation of God, from God to be freed from the slavery of people-pleasing because it is slavery. It's exhausting. Freed from the, the slavery of managing other people's opinions of you, of lying awake at night and second-guessing what you said and how you said it. And... That God's inviting you into a relationship where you can be fully known fully loved right now. Not a future version of you, a better version of you, but right now as you are because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now let's look at how G Joseph responds to this news, that God is at work, that Jesus is coming and will save his people from their sins, save his people from the source of their shame. Look in verses 24 through 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We see Joseph's fear of rejection cast out by the gospel. His response is fearless obedience. He says yes to God, even though it would. It's not an if. It will definitely cause him to have a bad reputation. This bad reputation that he was afraid of, that he was trying to manage and mitigate with his, uh, with his strategy, he now just walks straight into boldly because God called him to. Can we hear that this morning, that following God might make you less impressive to your high school classmates or whoever you try to impress? The following God might make you seem strange and less likely to be invited to things. My uh, freshman roommate in college, he was a great roommate, a very nice guy, but he's now on Wall Street. Uh, he probably has a jet or something crazy. Uh, and the last time we talked, he's a very nice guy, but it was extremely awkward because 
believe it or not, being a small-town Baptist pastor, uh, in the world's eyes, is a few rungs below a Wall Street tycoon or whatever. He's being very polite, but I'm not going to lie, it was awkward. However, the joy and freedom of the gospel is that God's call on your life is more compelling and exciting and impre- than, than impressing a college roommate or showing up awesome to your high school reunion. Joseph married the girl. He said yes to God, yes to some worldly rejection, but ultimately he said yes to Jesus. On the front end, he said no to Jesus because it would, cause, it would bring rejection. And then seeing who Jesus is, what he would do, he brought him in. Two things we see in Joseph's obedience. First, We read it already. The angel said that the baby would be called Jesus. So Joseph is saying yes to Jesus. He's saying yes to the destruction of his reputation. Sorry. I'm trying to get out in front of the cops. But that's not all, not all he said, yet, said yes to. He also said yes to giving up his rights as the earthly father to name the child. And of course, now it's important to name your child. Parents like to name their children. But back then, it was an even bigger deal. You get to name things you're in charge of. You get to name things that you manage. If you start a company, you start a band, you get to name it. If you have a child, you get to name it. But Joseph doesn't get to name Jesus. He gets that name handed to him. And he has to obey and give that to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. No one manages Jesus. No one owns Jesus. Part of Joseph's obedience is that he allows Jesus to be Lord. He receives Jesus, even as his own son, as a baby, as Lord. He obeys Jesus on Jesus' terms, not his own terms. So many times, we as Christians, we have this weird kind of economy in Jesus, in obeying Jesus. We're like, well, I'm really bad at reading my Bible, so I'll make up for that by church attendance and throw in some uh, service. We, we barter with God. We, we obey Jesus on our own terms, with what, what fits with our life and what's convenient. I can't really lay down my life for my wife, but I will work super hard and provide for her. That's, that, that's how I'll obey Jesus. But we see in Joseph what true obedience looks like in the life of a Christian. We obey Jesus because he's Lord on his terms. We say yes. Not to earn his approval, this is so crucial, not to earn his approval, but because we already have it and we trust him to know way better than we do. My dad took my brother and I whitewater rafting when we were in high school, and he, none of us, neither of us had been whitewater rafting, but it, you know, it's like you pay for a tour and they give you a guide and it's a big group of people going down the river. And my dad, better or worse, is a doctor, so he's been scaring us with medical anecdotes for as long as I can remember. I was always the snowboarder that had the dorky helmet on. Despite the stickers I put on it, I was still a dork. 
So we're signing the waiver at this uh, whitewater rafting place, and my brother and I are just hanging out while my dad does the paperwork, and he calls us over, and he, and he makes us read the, the, the warning, the, like all the things that could happen to you on the whitewater rafting trip. He's like, I just, I just want you both to know what we're getting into, and I want to make sure that you really want to do it. It was very intimidating. Uh, but, I mean, we were there. We had driven, you know, six hours to get to the river, whatever. So, so we do it, uh, but we were all pretty intimidated. We are all pretty, uh, pretty, pretty jittery getting into the raft. And we had a, a guide in the back steering and telling us what to do, you know, like which side to paddle and, and all that stuff. But I'll tell you what, we did every single thing he did as much as we could. We were on the edge of our seats waiting to hear what that guide said so that we could paddle exactly the way he said. When he said paddle hard, we crushed it. When he said right side go, you better believe the right side went. Because we had no idea what we were doing and he had done this river a hundred times. So we took great comfort in obeying him because he knew. Do you hear the difference between obeying Jesus because he's king, because he's good, because he knows better? He knows how to live the human life the way it's meant to be lived? Versus obeying Jesus to hopefully get him to like you? Or maybe let you into heaven? He said there's, there's peace, there's comfort in just doing as he, living life as he calls us to live it. We come to Jesus on his terms. We let him be Lord of our lives. We're not trying to manage him by bartering with some commands and not doing others. We're not reducing him to some guru whose teaching we can pick and choose from and add to some other gurus and make up our own way. We obey for our own thriving and flourishing. We're freed from people-pleasing, freed from trying to earn anyone's favor, and said we obey him for our own joy. So the question for you is, where is the fear of rejection keeping you from obeying God? Are you like I was slash am? Fear of man causing me to not love others the way I should? The fear of rejection causing you to make four poor financial choices, keeping up appearances, or keeping you from being generous, as Scripture calls us to be generous. Or, this, I think this is so sneaky, is the fear of man keeping you from doing anything. You're, you're scared of what people might think of you, so you just don't even try. You just kind of withdraw. Not obey Jesus by just being comfortable. Work a job and watch TV and repeat and no one can think poorly of you. You're not rocking the boat or doing anything that might call attention to yourself. How might freedom from the fear of rejection call you off of the couch and into life with, life with Jesus on mission to a broken and dying world? 